You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, March 8th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a Democracy in Hard Places initiative seminar titled Lessons from the Democratic Transition in Mongolia, 25 Years After Revolution. The talk featured Jargal DeFacto, economist and media personality, Mark Elliott, Vice Provost of International Affairs at Harvard University and the Mark Schwartz Professor of Chinese and Inter-Asian History, moderated. Anthony Sage, Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation Director and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs, provided an introduction. Let's listen in. But our speaker today is a skilled uh, entrepreneur in the areas uh, of uh, uh, questions around democracy and challenges, and I think he will also be hooking this into his own uh, social media platforms and others. And certainly the experience of, Demo- of, of Mongolia is fascinating. I was uh, just saying to one of our colleagues here, last time I was in Mongolia was actually 1979. So <laughs> quite a lot has changed there since, and despite incredible uh, challenges, uh, uh, Mongolia has been moving uh, in a positive uh, direction, but uh, we will leave that to our distinguished speaker to follow up with. My last role for today is just to introduce uh, Mark Elliott, who we're very lucky to have to make time with us, given his in- unbelievably busy schedule. Mark is uh, both Vice Provost for International Affairs at Harvard University, trying to help us think through our global engagement for the university as a whole, but is also the Mark Schwartz Professor of China and Inter-Asian History in the Department of East Languages and Civilizations and the Department of History uh, in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And Mark has always been very engaged with the international profile of the university, even before taking on uh, this latest job. has been very active with organizations such as the Fairbank Center, with whom we often uh, partner for these uh, events. And he is the enfant terrible of Qing history, uh, <laughs> having been uh, figured pr- prominently in uh, some of the Chinese critics, but has really pushed forward new visions of both the Qing history, but also Qing's engagement, uh, and even before that, with its boundaries and how it thinks uh, about its neighbors. So Mark is an entirely appropriate person from both those perspectives uh, to introduce our guest today. Mark, please. Thank you, Tony. Uh, thank you for very kind introduction, and thanks to uh, all of you for joining us today. Uh, the weather, I think, you should feel at home, Dragal. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> good temperature, uh, not too warm. From last night, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, again, I think, oh, I thought I had turned it on, so. All right, maybe now? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And I apologize if I'm a bit hoarse from a cold the last couple of days. Um, so, again, appreciation to the Ash Center, uh, to Tony Melissa for organizing uh, the event and the Asia Center's uh, cooperation here. Uh, we are very pleased to uh, have uh, uh, Jargal Sakan uh, Dambardadra uh, with us here today, Jargal, uh, or Jargal de facto, <laughs> as he uh, likes to be known, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, saves, uh, saves some time. Uh, Jargal is, uh, I think, uh, one of those people in, in, in every country uh, who helps to set the tone of the national conversation. Uh, and uh, uh, these days, of course, uh, uh, 
unlike in the past where it usually was a television personality or before that, say, a radio personality or a writer of opinion pieces in the newspaper, Jargal is, in all of these areas, uh, a very active person. He's a public intellectual. Uh, he uh, has a significant experience in, in the private sector as well as in uh, uh, the uh, media. Uh, and runs a, a regular uh, television show on which I had the, the honor of, of appearing and uh, had the pleasure of sending to my mom who wanted to know uh, what you said at the beginning of the, of the program. Uh, but the, uh, that, uh, his uh, regular, uh, uh, his blogs, uh, uh, articles he writes, uh, make him one of the really, the people who form public opinion uh, in, in Mongolia. And I know we have some uh, some people here in the audience today uh, who, are, who are from Mongolia and certainly will, will know uh, Jargal by, uh, by reputation. Uh, Jargal studied uh, in uh, Moscow, uh, so he straddles both, uh, both of the periods of recent uh, Mongolian uh, history and has really thrown himself into the thick of the uh, messy business of growing democracy in uh, uh, I guess I guess a hard place. It's it's a hard place, I suppose, if one of your neighbors is Russia and the other one of your neighbors is the People's Republic of China. Uh, and so the third neighbor policy is certainly one of the ways in which Mongolia has sought to uh, find itself a little bit of room for maneuvering. Um, but I will point out that uh, between South Korea and uh, Poland, uh, Mongolia is about the only democracy you're going to find in Asia. Uh, and uh, the uh, success or failure of democracy in Mongolia is a matter of uh, real importance, I think, for everybody interested in political processes uh, around the world, particularly in emerging areas uh, like uh, Central Asia, say, or in Latin America, for instance, or, or the Middle East. And I'm very much looking forward, as I'm sure you are, uh, to uh, his remarks today. Uh, Jargal, I think uh, you'll speak for r roughly 40 minutes or so. And then uh, that should put us in, in good, uh, good position for about 20 to 25 minutes of Q&A uh, and so that we can wind up uh, at the regular time of, of 1.15. And with that, uh, I will give the floor over to uh, our distinguished visitor uh, from Ulaanbaatar, Dragal de facto. Thank you. It's an honor to talk to you. Thank you for your interest in Mongolia. Uh, you know, I'm coming from the understanding and, uh, and commitment to a nation having peace and prosperity. And peace and prosperity both coming to only a nation that has freedom, political and economic freedom political freedom because that's democracy, economic freedom because it's a free market. And a combination of democracy, free market, innovation, that's what brings peace and prosperity. And every nation goes and is trying to go to that direction. Mongolia, we're lucky to start that road 28 years ago. But it turned out not that easy road, very bumpy road. And we come today to growing uh, understanding 
of how difficult it was, or it is. You know, that, that, that is what I want to share today with you. And I would like to talk about Mongolia 30 years ago and now. Why? 30 years ago, I happened to walk on the bank of Geneva Lake. Exactly 30 years ago at this time, March. It's 88, before just Prague Spring, before all collapse of communist system. And that time I was, at night we arrived, I was working for International Union of Students, more Eastern Bloc socialist youth organizations, international community. And I was sent by Mongolian youth organizations to work in Prague, Czech Republic, capital that time. Probably many of you know that Eastern Bloc was working also very much consolidated. There was a Cold War, and uh, I'm one of the, a member of a revolutionary party, all the party in the country, a youth movement leader. I was sent to Prague. And from Prague, I had the chance to visit its first Western country, Switzerland. And I was walking at that night and expecting somebody will attack me in any minute. <laughs> and I should so many should see many beggars in the street, violent criminals. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any of them. I was in shock. How come? Why nobody is attacking me, as our propaganda said? And the capitalist system is decaying. And I was so disappointed that night or in a way confused. Either everything was wrong, or it is something today's special day. <laughs> so that was 30 years ago. You can imagine, I mean, it's half of my life in socialist Mongolia, half, another half, physically half life, is in a capitalist Mongolia. So 30 years ago, a young man, about 30 years old, discovering that, that something was wrong with the system. You know, after studied uh, economics in Moscow State University and uh, working two years back in Mongolia and sent back to the uh, organization I'm talking about. And we were a part of the change because this International Union of Students uh, organizations were also participating in the changes in the former socialist countries. And in Prague, there was a square called after name of Sukhubata Square. Sukhubata is our national hero in socialist countries somehow called certain areas by the name of their own heroes. So uh, after my, I was sent to Polytechnical University of Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at that time, in Prague, which happened to be on Sukhubata Square, I made a speech, short speech, asking to free Václav Havel. So it was the beginning of the, you, the, the Václav Square was full of people that time, Vinslav Square is the name. And next day in the youth, Maladezhny Novosti uh, of Czech Republic, there was a short word. A guy from Mongolia was speaking for democracy, freedom of speech in Czech, Czechoslovakia, on the square of Sukhobata. So that was a short remark. But 
every, each of us representing other countries were coming to other institutions in the Czech Republic, the Czechoslovakia, and that we were feeling that change, that the communist system was collapsing. And we want to know more what's happening in Mongolia, and I, I have contacted my friend, Zorik Sanjasurundin, who was um, also my university uh, mate. We studied together in Moscow. So he was that time teaching uh, philosophy at the Mos Mongolian State University, who became one of uh, the uh, heroes of uh, the revolution. So I have contacted him. He said he is organizing, they are organizing first democratic union meeting in the country. I arrived from Prague. And I was sitting in the Congress, that con uh, union conference, and people, it was the first official kind of gathering in Mongolia. And, uh, and as a head of, uh, as a delegation, uh, as a Mongolian union students, we get together and w we ask it to be separated from youth organization, which is called Riv Samo. So we made it. And <coughs> We organized first meeting of the uh, of the uh, political parties. That time they called themselves by different name, different parties, but no, 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 nobody had registered them, of course. So then that time we were sitting like this, and we asked uh, what for we are organizing a conf uh, the demonstration on March 3rd, March 4th of, uh, it was in a week we were preparing for that, and that time we didn't know about democracy much. We only knew that we need human rights, we declaration of human rights, protections, etc. So we started to kind of outline what Mongolia will do. And first, these political parties get together. We have organized. Uh, I remember a <coughs> the March fourth demonstration, and uh, we. The, we sitting like this, and uh, we will write uh, appeal to Mongolian military force not to use power or weapons against all nations. Now, who will write this? I, I, I volunteered to other guys, and it was uh, the guy who became that time president, who is graduate from your university, Ilpugdorj, and Ronchugdorj, who was the speak, who became a speaker later on. So we wrote the first appeal, and the students at that night went to call Mongolian street Lambater and put the small appeal printed paper on every uh, column of Taralibas lines. So it was the start of our change. Well, as you know, slowly Mongolia made new constitutions. We, we declared that we will have transition to uh, free market democratic political system. And since that, for the last 30 years, what happened was we have changed the, the government 14 times. And out of this 28 years, 14 were a years of crisis, economic crisis, or close to uh, economic crisis. And now I'm qu asking questions, what we are doing right and what we are doing wrong. So, socialist Mongolia and capitalist Mongolia. Socialist Mongolia, there was no private property. 
there was only stick property. And this stick was saying how much white or black or yellow shirts we will wear, whole nation, for that period next year. It's centrally planned economy. And you wear, you, you, you cannot, there's no other supply. You wear only those things which was planned by the central planning committee. No private property. And uh, I remember a time when police came to my house where my, my father, jewelry smith, ma making this earrings. And the police came, confiscated this metal stick. You know, on the stick there is ornament. You put the small thin layer of silver and put ornament on that and later on cut it. This is the main tools that my family was earning. Still, it was illegal. So they came, you are doing private production, the police confiscated. So that time I was in shock. Why they would confiscate what my father did wrong? Well, he did wrong because he wanted to have a private property. So that's why the capitalist, such a system in Mongolia, in, in any country, in, in, the, in the countries that is coming, still will be collapsing because this is against your economic freedom, against your private property. So that's in Mongolian economic, I will tell about this economic changes. First property, protection of private property. And in a constitution we wrote that we will protect all forms of property. But the problem is now state property is becoming larger and bigger. In the state-owned enterprise in Mongolia is becoming slowly party-owned enterprises today, nowadays. In Mongolia, government is still controlling prices, in particular for, for electricity, uh, water, and every supply of the common needs. So we don't have completely private property. We have more and more growing state property. That's the big problem, which, uh, which, which also, uh, in the Constitution, it says the, it will protect the private property, uh, also state property. So government, instead of doing, state instead of doing the main function, protecting uh, property rights, and are mostly now creating more and more state-owned <coughs> enterprises in Mongolia. Government is becoming larger in buying more goods with very poorly organized tender. That's what's happening in the economic front. In, uh, on the political front, democracy, mostly output, outcome-oriented policies happen. We, we have been organizing elections. We, as you said, we have seven in a row elections we organized. And, um, we keep changing our government, as I told you, 14 times, which is uh, average period of one government is less than two years, which is a big problem, but it is not that big problem compared with uh, our neighbors where government is not changed at all <laughs> you know, for years. So there is it has a positive and negative sides. Um, So now we have new system, a parliamentarian system. It was a before like rubber stamp 
parliament, 400 plus people would come and tell or predetermined everything what the Central Committee of the People's Party have decided. Now we have 76 members, but the problem is so out of the 76, every fifth is member is a executive minister, cabinet member. And which brings a lot of conflict of interest in the country. And they say, oh, the British system works in that way. Yes, but they have a parliament members over 500, 600 people. And if 15 of them are ministers, it is not a problem at all. In Mongolia, it causes a big conflict of interests. So we have this sort of a democratic system with this, we call it tapal bel, or the, a person being a parliament member and uh, executive uh, par uh, power member. And we have two political parties, mainly dominating on the political arena. But if you, today, if you close your eyes and watch what's happening, think, imagine what is happening, these two political parties have no differences. It's just the same populistic party. <coughs> So what happened today in Mongolia? Why we are so slow in our changes? I'm not, I'm, I'm not telling you about the changes happened in Mongolia uh, in terms of what you can see. Ulaanbaatar city is a completely different city. We, we consume, uh, by the way, I was uh, walking just uh, two, three weeks ago, again on the same bank of Geneva Lake. And I was that time thinking, I was not expecting already any rubber, but I was uh, thinking about the change we made. This 28 years, almost uh, 30 years, uh, Mongolia made dramatic achievement in economic terms. We have this almost the same cars like in Switzerland. Okay. People look very good. A lot of youth studying abroad, freedom, everything. I'm not talking about that positive part we have achieved because everybody talks about, about them and about particularly about politicians. Yes, there are a lot of achievements. The very fact that we have many Mongolians already studying here and in many other countries, in many other universities, it shows that we have economic and political freedom, more or less. But is it enough to, with the expectations we had? No. Why? Because we, democracy is not only election. But democracy is about uh, people control the power. After election, they should watch the power. And the power should be transparent, in particular political parties, as the main institutions that creates this democratic political structure in the country, which is not the case. And what happened as a result of it? We so much distorted the political values of democracy. Political parties, both parties, have no big secret about their political party financing and campaign financing. And literally, they sell in a way power, position, ministerial positions, other uh, government positions. As a, they sell it in, this, in the form of the political donations. Parties 
people who has money give millions, billions, two weeks to their political party. And that political leader, uh, the party leader cannot inform or disclose that because it will be a violation of laws. Why? Because by our constitution, by our party, political party's law, if you give more than 10 million duriks to a political party, you need to announce it. But they give billions of duriks, which is equivalent of about a million dollar now, here, in, in the US term. Some are even giving more, and those who have donated are becoming ministers as well, because they have bought it, simply. So that demoralizing uh, political institutions, our party institutions, uh, political institutions, government institutions, which become non-transparent. Now people come with a different agenda. And more than that, they replace all public offices with their own people, which don't give a chance to political, insti political and economic inst institutions to be strong. So now, with this less than two years change of government, we replace completely the public offices. And then new people are coming. It takes time to have a training. I mean, in your countries, here in the Western uh, economies, you train them all their life. We just train, invest some money, and they're gone. So because this uh, corruption system, the political and economic institutions are becoming weaker, more bureaucratic, consciously and unconsciously. So because that economic, uh, political institutions don't work properly, economic institutions also reflecting that weakness and not working properly, which creates not stable business environment. And eventually this entrepreneurship is dying in, this, in the country because you cannot compete with the uh, business of your minister or somebody who is giving permission. It's impossible. So that's why today more people want to work for the government than for private sector because it's becoming non-competitive. Prices are controlled, corruption system we cannot eradicate. And from time to time I think if there was no this vast mineral resources we have the economy could be collapsed a long time ago. It's a collapsing in a way, because if the commodity price goes down, Mongolia will come to into crisis. And, and even at the time when Mongolia had the highest growth, 2011, we had Mozambique, Mongolia, the largest growing economy, the, the best currency, appreciation countries in the world, 2011, we had 17.6% GDP growth. But in 2012, we had the largest bond borrowed. We issued, we borrowed $1.5 billion bond, and somehow called, I don't know why, by the name of Chinggis Khan. I don't understand logics of the people. The, the third time politician. So when the grow, economy grows, we have the largest income into the coffin of the state. And we again, we have borrowed such a big money, which brought 
further destabilization of the economy. That time, central bank governors have issued the same amount of money against this US dollar two weeks and put into the program called price stabilization program, discounted mortgage program. Both are impossible. Now we are today, today paying for these mistakes. And we are economies sinking completely. Then what happens? IMF comes. There's no other choice. IMF comes with a package of $5.5 billion for the economy of $10 billion. Now the country foreign debt is about 70, government debt is 70% of our GDP. And who's going to have a responsibility for that, in particular when they paying back, at the time of paying back the debt? Even when they have raised 1.5 billion US dollars, they didn't know what to spend for. They kept it for all one year in the bank account, not using and paying 70 billion, a million dollars a month for that interest rate. Who is taking responsibility for that? Until now, nobody. And now the current government, now it's already the second government of one political party, they were representing themselves as like a hero when they're borrowing 5.5 million, billion dollars through IMF. They are just paying all debt with new debt, with a longer term, with a higher interest rate. And they're represent, presenting themselves as a hero. So that's the situation of the economy. Economy. And I don't know how, when we will and how we'll go out from the debt. Politicians say that, oh, don't worry, we have so much minerals that the, at certain point, commodity price coming to a certain level, then we pay off, which is not true. And all this thing, I just described you our political system and the economic system. All this together give the people a wrong impression about such a value like democracy. Now they are confused. But will this work? Will this democratic system work? Why would not have a strong leader? That's the tendency, growing tendency. And you know what? They got a strong leader. <coughs> Literally, our president is a world champion for Zudo. Well, but there is no strong economic and political policy in the country. Not clear leadership. There is not clear leader who will really prove the, what they talk and what they do. So as a result, we have uh, economic now, a lot of depression, uh, mostly uh, is coming from too much government. Now government promising everything. You know, all this populism is like a drug. It's good at the beginning, but it will not give you a last solution. At the end, it leaves you even worse when you have started. That's what is populism in Mongolia. So now question is, what shall we do? So I come to the conclusion that Democracy is about people, not about the government. People should know their rights. People should be more involved. Long process. 
You know, anyway, your country also knows that. In Boston, uh, 257 years ago, there was a, a lawyer who was giving a speech in this state old house against, it's called Brits uh, Association of Assistants, uh, Brits, British Writs of Assistance. That was the, uh, the, uh, the, the resolution of the British that time government to search private property without warranty. So 257 years ago, the people were giving that speech here, protecting private property. 30 years ago, that was happening with my father, see, for example. So it's a long process, yes, clear. You are still working on that. We are working on 30 years. So everything what I told you today is from that perspective, historic perspective, you can understand. But my question is, can we do it a little bit faster? And what shall we do for that? And uh, I decided to be a part of that, making faster or a little bit better. So um, so democracy is about people, and we will work. And we, we should work about participation of people. And nobody is giving uh, any time for that in particular from the politician side. Nobody is working about increasing awareness, knowledge of ordinary Mongolians. They just find out they're just mostly busy with the outcomes, like such elections, etc. But not, not long-term impact. So for that, we need a particular education system, I believe. Um, so I decided to be a part of it. And uh, nine years ago, I decided to write an article. Promised for myself to write it for 10 years, every week. And it's ninth year, and I have not missed a week. I wrote probably 400 some articles and made uh, all I write about economic, political, hot issues of that week in a, such a language, simple language, that everybody understands what is behind. So it's mostly about governance. It's mostly about power of people. It's, it's about our faith. It's, it's, it's in our hand. My one book is called uh, uh, Our Country is in Our Hand. And each of my article goes also in English until uh, for another two, three years, then now my uh, every week article goes in six languages, Chinese, Russian, Korean, and Japanese. And uh, in a year after I start to write article, I start to have a, a show called De Facto Interview, uh, Interview, yes, where Mark was last year, right? I talk to people in Russian, Mongolian, and English, and interesting people whose doing could be good impact on the way we live, on our society. So I interviewed different leaders, different scientists, famous people in the country, around the world. I had the chance to interview Dalai Lama in India three years ago. 
we planned for 25 minutes, our entry was 46 minutes. Um, so this interview, then um, I made, uh, my interview was on, uh, no, no, my article was on the radio for last eight, seven years now. Uh, so that people more by all these channels understand exactly what is that issue about. And social media is of such a good help. And I think in a country like Mongolia, you know, we are on the territory of size of Texas, three million people. You can imagine how we should work smartly to outreach each household. Then, um, <coughs> For the last two years, I started to make weekly review on the most four issues of uh, weekly events in the country. I tried to give uh, why all this is happening, the reason, what is the cause of the problems, describing in a way from that perspective I was just now talking to you. And for, from last year, we have a de facto debate. Debate is a very important thing in democratic, in particular, development society. If people don't debate with knowledge, they fight with arguments. And, you know, with uh, less information, brainwashed by politicians, people would come into fighting. Mongolia, I think, the most politicized country because every family is politicized. The wife is supporting one party, husband is supporting another party, and they are fighting on the political issues. Well, who is not, right? <laughs> so I believe that with uh, this all information, I'm trying to be a part of understanding by people all these economic and political issues and issues we are facing which impact on our daily life and it impacts seriously. Because this foreign debt, our national currency is so much devalued. At certain time, 30% devalued per half um, a year. And you can imagine uh, the feeling of the people. Our poverty level was 20% three years ago. Now it's 30%. Because this devaluation of our money. And because this, for example, the populistic policy of uh, discounted mortgage interest rate, a house, we, <coughs> what happens was, uh, what is happening is people get house with expensive houses with lower interest rate, lower I mean 8%. Can you imagine 8% mortgage rate, which is still regarded two times less than the ordinary rate? which is artificial, and the, the rest of the other people, the rest, the people, some receive a house, but the rest of the people through their taxes are paying that subsidi subsidiaries that we pay. So this sort of uh, things, what's happening. Um, <coughs> so I said uh, the democracy's process with people more involvement, but then an important role, uh, this is my last uh, point, should play in this democratic society by media, which is not unfortunately the very much case in the country, though it's a very free country. In 2016, the Press Institute uh, 
reported, Mongolia reported that there are 485 media outlets, 100 newspaper, 70 radio stations, 130 TV stations, almost 100 internet news portals. It's uh, for a country of 3 million. So now I ask question, how where they are getting funded? So small market, and there are so many of outlets. Because 75% of these outlets are politically affiliated. A lot of politicians have own media. Unfortunately, including our president. <coughs> so that's the most important part of our democracy today, media. The media should be independent and free. And uh, very little done towards that direction because the people who may have change or policy, they have their own media. So the Washington Post slogan, democracy dies in darkness. That's what it's about, about my country. But however, after saying all this, still I am very optimistic because 70% uh, uh, of the country is under 35 years old. And 35 years old people don't know anything about social system where what happened to my family, for example. So these people know freedom. These people respect human rights. And if these people empowered, and they will not tolerate any corrupt system, political system, and they will be for normal democratic political structure in the country. That's why I believe strongly in the future of my country and uh, will be happy to answer any questions you may raise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you've, you've touched on uh, quite a range of, of uh, topics here, uh, from the personal to uh, the uh, uh, highly political. I'm thinking of you walking around the shores of Lake Geneva in <laughs> 1988, wondering if it's Be Nice to Mongolians Day in Switzerland that day, <laughs> happily for you, uh, and uh, the thoughts that must have been going through your mind. And clearly, uh, that set off a process um, of reevaluation and re-engagement that you have uh, been pursuing uh, in the 30 years that have passed since then. I'm struck by a couple of things that, uh, uh, a couple of lines here that I've written down in my notes. Uh, yes, 14 changes of government not necessarily a good thing, but it may be better than having had no change of government at all uh, in, uh, in that period of time. Uh, another line I've written down here, if people don't debate with knowledge, they fight with arguments. And I think that we are seeing that very much playing out in our own democracy, despite its long history, which I think is a sign that however old your democracy may be, there's never any end to needing to guard it. Uh, and indeed, a lot of the education that happens, a lot of the work and research that happens here at the Harvard Kennedy School is about that very thing. And I'm looking here uh, across the, uh, on the wall, different titles uh, as you were speaking about innovation, innovation in American government, deepening democracy, a book by uh, the academic dean of the school, uh, co-authored by him, Full Disclosure, The Perils and Promise of Transparency, something that you emphasize in, uh, in your remarks. Uh, the high level of turnover of high officials. And this is certainly something that we at Harvard have experienced directly because 
my uh, several visits to the country. Each time I go, I've been well received, uh, and, uh, and thanks to our professor uh, from the School of Public Health, Gamma Dalatambu. Uh, Dr. Gamma has uh, uh, been one of Harvard's uh, strongest advocates for engagement with Mongolia. Uh, and no sooner have I developed a foundation for a, uh, an agreement, and I think, Tony, you've had similar kinds of things. Yeah. The cast of characters completely changes a few months later, and you're back to starting all over again. And okay. this has been frustrating uh, for us. Um, it seems to me, and I'll, I'm going to say this and then ask a question and then we'll open it up to the floor, that what Mongolia needs, and I'm speaking here, of course, as somebody on the outside, but what Mongolia needs principally is more people like you who are engaged, uh, who see things for what they are and yet retain a belief in the, the power of democracy as best system so far, uh, not that it's perfect, uh, for achieving peace and prosperity, as you explained in the very beginning, uh, and, and yet remain optimistic and uh, uh, willing to, to, to commit to, to making that happen. My question is this. <coughs> it has to do with the, the place of the judicial, because you didn't speak about the judici judicial at all. I know that uh, we have one graduate of the Harvard Law School who is in the Ministry of Justice, uh, middle-ranking middle uh, person uh, who I know um, uh, was well-trained here and is very committed to uh, the same sorts of causes that, that, that you are committed to. Um, you didn't talk about the judicial very much and the role of the judicial in protecting the institutions that provide checks on political power, and but you, ha you have certainly described how those excesses can get in, in the way and create real problems. Now, when it comes to democracy, and here you'll forgive me for making a historical reference, I have often heard from Mongolian colleagues and friends that we have democracy in Mongolia in part because we have this ancient Kuriltai tradition, government by council. And this is how we have historically done things, so it's natural for us, as it were, to go back to that traditional form of government today. I haven't heard people talk about Yasakh, which is another ancient tradition mm -hmm. of a legal code mm -hmm. that also traces back to you know, mm -hmm. the 13th, 12th and 13th centuries, um, which is the other part of the Kurultai, it seems to me. And I wondered if that, if there is a discussion about that, and I may very well be ignorant of it, uh, and if there's not, is, is, is that one way to try to get people to begin to engage with the, the third leg of this, of, of, of this, uh, tripartite structure that I think in most places is seen as necessary uh, in order to keep democratic institutions from uh, completely failing. Very interesting. I especially I could not have time for this important part of our and governance. Just to interrupt, <laughs> it gives me great pleasure to be able to ask you this question after Thank being you. the guest who got all the questions on your show. Yeah. <laughs> so I get to turn the table on you. Revenge. Okay. <laughs> You know, I keep saying, uh, highlight to my interviews that nobody is punished because they ask a question. Many people punished because they answered questions. You are not punished. <laughs> On the judiciary system. You know, because this internal democracy of these two political parties are so low, and system becomes slowly corrupt, and nobody 
of high-ranking positions, people never had the penalty in our system. I think it gone too far. That's why, for example, this year we, in, 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 a, in a corruption index, we came back 16 places back, for example. Why? Because high-ranking corruption cases got never penalty. What does it say? Judiciary system is not working. Judiciary system is got that impact from non-democracy of political institutions. Our leaders speak very well, but their deed is different or not enough with what they have been promising. You know, I once I write article after visiting Indonesia. My article was named where is our president? That is the article about Jokowi. I came back, wrote an article, where is our president? What Indonesians say that the, that president speaks so well and doing nothing, actually. <laughs> so we have been in the same situation. Where is our president? Speaking so good, both energetic, young, relatively, and speak very well, but it is very little. Because that article, I was kicked out from my newspaper, which was printing me for seven years. So mm -hmm. I did not talk about my new Gazeta, de facto Gazeta. I had to issue our own Gazeta because I was kicked out. But they did not. They, the newspaper said, why you are not printing me today? They said, no, we will not. Why? No, because we cannot say that about our president. You should say that's, that's the whole issue of independent media. So we had to fight. I left. So now, as a result, I have a de facto Gazeta. Every week comes in all this, my information, reviews, and my articles in Mongolian, English, Japanese. Why Japanese? Because Japanese have very little independent information about Mongolian. Yet, it's our largest investor, closest partner, who want to see more Japanese into the economy in Mongolia. Shall we uh, open the floor up for, for questions? So you spoke a little bit uh, about. Could you identify? Yeah. Identify oh, absolutely. Yourself. I'm Gina Choi. I'm from HBS. Um, so my question will veer more into the business side of things. Apologize to everyone else. Um, so we spoke a little bit about the erosion of political and economic institutions in the country. Um, my question is: Is it helpful or harmful for organizations or businesses to almost sidestep the government altogether? For example, if Hasbank is looking for a concessional financing from the Green Climate Fund or EBRD, is that undermining the state or do you view that as a positive in terms of being able to counterbalance the power that the government currently holds? Well, that's the dilemma we, we face. For, for business, we want to see stable. <coughs> And I think it's very logical until the internal democracy of that political party is really grown up. Without that, we, they need to change because of this conflict of interest among themselves. And I think it's political parties are changing. Okay, uh, it doesn't work. <coughs> um, political parties. Um, 
are being political parties have changed in the government because they have a different fractions inside, not based on difference of values. I believe this is difference on the contribution, financial contribution that group made to into the political party. In cases, some for example, why the lowest contributing political power should have a government instead of the largest contributing. So this is the the reason why they are keep changing, and unfortunately, which is not good for businesses. And a plus, new government comes with the new decisions. Uh, completely, sometimes completely different. So is that is that a yes or a no to, to yeah, Dina's question? The, in the corrupt conditions to work with the government is not that easy question. With whom and how long? Instead, they would rather demand business, more stable environment that does not depend on the politicians, whoever is in power. So uh, from that perspective, I think at least four years must be for the government stable. Is it possible for a bank, an important bank like Hasbank, to get around the government? Are they able to operate independently? Um, in fact, the is, more is that even an option for them? I think is. I think the stronger is the company or bank, <coughs> they would be easily, more easily to work without government. And I'm uh, really, in particular, in Mongolia, our some largest two commercial banks have all media, including those. I, talk, I talked about media. Yeah. Banks have own media, politicians have own media. How you can uh, have a fair competition with the other media? Other questions? Hello, uh, I'm Dugi from HKS. I'm doing an international development program here. I have a question about how you see Mongolian future. And my question has two parts. First is, what do you think is the biggest uh, risk or biggest uh, challenge Mongolia is facing in near future, in the medium term? And the second part is, how do you think the two-party system, like, how do you think the parties, the Democratic Party and the People's Party evolve, w and what their future is like? Are they going to be in place in 10 years, or are they going to be new uh, forces emerging because if you look at the surveys in Mongolia, their ranking is tanking. Both of them makes up like 30% now. The 70% is independent. So how do you see that? Thank you. Well, challenges uh, in, the, in near terms, uh, say from five or so years from now, is, uh, is connected with these two political parties. And uh, I don't think today these two, two political parties have strong leadership, integrity. And as of yesterday, even the Democratic Party have changed completely their, uh, the composition of the leading group. And uh, to the extent there was a comment that uh, Mr. Barber, who is very prominent, uh, 
a person, media person in Mongolia, he said the Mongolia is run by criminals. That was his com comment last night. Two political parties. I don't expect much from them until they are completely show that they are they have a full internal democracy, which I don't see it's going to happen. But the problem is again this judiciary system. Mongolian judiciary system, the High Court. They decide to register or not political parties. They decide whether they have amended amendments are agreed uh, amendments are accepted or not by the. The, our judicial system, which gives me very big suspicion that they will not register maybe new political parties which are brewing somehow, somewhere, anyway in Mongolia. Because people cannot go anymore with these current two political parties uh, who is running the country in tr in, uh, in, uh, by turn. Thank you. Uh, you seem in Mongolia to have carved out, pardon? Oh, I introduced uh, Christopher Lucy uh, from the State of Forest. It seems that Mongolia has carved out a lot of political and economic autonomy in terms of recent Chinese history or recent history with your neighbors and next door in Russia and also. And are you going to be able to maintain that in the long run? You seem to have a lot of international contact with Japan. The IMF comes in, and I'm sort of surprised at that being allowed in the backyard of Beijing. Uh, that's <laughs> big questions. But however, I am confident that we will do. We will do what we can do, because see the very fact that we are discussing openly, straightforward, I can discuss my opinion about the current rulers like this. Because this intrinsic value we have, we will be able to uh, to change if things will be, not, we will up, up, upgrade our policy. We will, we will make our economic, social economic development better. We will have a living standard of Mongolians higher. So then I think Mongolians will be more confident and this will be a guarantee. Our wealth will be prosperity, peace will be a guarantee of having the uh, world community supporting us in case. But uh, we have the same relations with two our neighbors and we have a policy of third neighbors, which is uh, any other countries other than our two neighbors are also our neighbors. Yeah, we yes, we have been uh, we have been uh, maintaining these relations for last eight hundred years. We sometimes we have lost them these relations balances. Sometimes we got it back. Now we get it back. Sometimes for you've been the dominant partner in those relations. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, 
And uh, in Russia, by the way, they are now more recognizing that part. They are in, uh, invading a more independent view on our history, relationship with Tatara Mongolian, Tatar Mongolian, they call it Iga invasion. Yes, uh, one of the major channel will be the economic relations with both of them, and it is uh, the corridor issue. And it's I in particular in favor of uh, Mongolia because our southern neighbor has a very ambitious plan, one belt, one road, and that one of these roads goes through Mongolia, this corridor. But now the issue is coming about uh, gauge. And now we have different policy. Inside, I even wrote an article called Mongolia must be the next Panama, saying that China and Russia is number two, number three largest net railway network in the world after the US. And uh, the, these two largest network of railway has uh, one problem. They have a difference of 85 millimeter <laughs> of meeting each other. So that could be in the center of Mongolia, so all Chinese train can come straight, Russians too, but we have the best facility to uh, reload from one gauge to other gauge. That will be a good chance for Mongolia, and I think it's good for Russia and China, because they don't depend now on each other, now depend on the third country, and uh, this is, uh, this is a, a large country, 4,000 kilometers with Russia, 5,000 500 kilometers with China, it's a huge border. So these two network come and meet if in Mongolia, then it will be faster and better service for Asia, Europe, trade and transportation. Mongolian Canal. Yep. This is it. I have one comment and then a question. Um, I thought what was very important was the way you laid out the fact that your democracy is much more than the elections. And it seems to me in emerging democracies or democracies that have been struggling on for 30 years, too much of the external attention goes on is there an electoral process or not. But I think what you've outlined are the crucial areas that unless you have media, the judiciary, and the engagement of the citizenship, you can have elections, but you get disillusionment with democratic outcomes. And we've seen this in so many different environments. So one of the things I was very struck with was the tension between what you're talking about, your faith in the young people uh, in Mongolia, who would be uh, only really sort of working within one system, but they may seem imperfect and want to correct it. But with a comment you made earlier about these ideas of a strong leader, whether it's a wrestler or not, but wanting a strong leader. And then, of course, you do see Russia and China playing into that, where you know, Russia has moved uh, <coughs> towards a sort of popular acceptance with not going to be able to express its preference, I guess, for strong leadership. That's something China has certainly uh, been moving towards to overcome some of these chaotic problems of transition. So... Does that play into um, Mongolian sentiments that looking at the neighbors, not in economic terms, but maybe reinforcing this idea, oh, well, a strong leader can get us through 
these challenges? Uh, Mongolians will be happy as soon as the economy good, the living standard is well. They don't actually, we don't care of that much of leader because we are nomads. We live independently, we live well. If every if condition is provided well. So I think the economic prosperity is the key issue than the leader issue. And we are fine, we are happy with having um, the freedom of political freedom that we can express our what we think, what we share, even different opinions. That's, I think, more important value that just nowadays I was thinking, if, like 30 years ago, if I will take a passport of this young man and he will tell him you cannot go, you, not, you will not have a foreign passport and you cannot go leave the country, they will die. They will not understand that. This, this freedom of economic and political freedom, which on and off sometimes happening, but generally what we have will make Mongolia stronger in comparison with any other countries, whatever situation, but the Mongolians will have this intrinsic freedom to have a political and economic structure, a free choice. I'm Doreen Steidel. I'm an <coughs> advanced leadership initiative fellow here at Harvard. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak about the middle class. Is it growing? Is it aspirational? Do these students who come back from abroad and are so talented fit into the middle class, and does that contribute to social change? In other words, is the society changing in a very positive way that leads you to have that optimism that you have? I'm Zala. I'm a student from Mongolia, currently studying at Harvard Law School. Um, so, with uh, so, I think we do have you know all the forms of democracy in Mongolia, but probably the substance is you know um, is questionable at the moment, as, as Mr. Um, General Sehan just mentioned. So, um, I was wondering. Um, I mean, we don't have uh, the. Uh, I mean, we do have some uh, challenges in terms of like. Checks and balances of the, uh, of the um, government institutions, and which is the fundamental uh, principle in a democratic country. Uh, so I was, I, I'm so I'm wondering, uh, what is your view, Mr. General Sehang, on the uh, current state of rule of law in Mongolia in general, in in a very general general form? Because we see that the par parliament is, you know, uh, seems to be very dominant, and and now is acting as if it's a judiciary. Sometimes it's just contravening to the into the uh, executive um, branch so much that they cannot work independently or you know uh, work reasonably. I think so. Thank you. I'm Sanusur, Kennedy School MPA student. Um, I want my question is about like political party system because in Mongolia, like we have uh, the main player is in the political party. It's last year I started reform movement in Democratic Party. Still, it's ongoing process. But uh, how can you see the change in the political party system? Because the between the political parties, its members, it's like the all the corruption comes up and all the policy in Mongolian government comes from the political party. So, uh, can you uh, focus more on? Those issues. Thank you. 
party. Yes, uh huh. One minute. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Middle class. Um, you know, eventually we have a growing middle class. Though statistically it may be uh, not that important, but out of three million people, we have a hundred fifty thousand people working abroad and are studying. And it is the one of the most traveling nation in a way that because our freedom people get this sort of knowledge, developed countries, knowledge, society, they are coming back and they impact on the way they leave, their relatives leave. And I think this is such a factor that one needs to specially study. Yes, we have a growing middle class. That's why in spite of all these negative aspects I have talked today, the economy is going well. You, you can buy anything in Mongolia, you can go all different classes, whatever you need, the services, etc. So uh, in that sense, economy is becoming bigger and we have more now even uh, Russians from Siberia coming, uh, purchasing, shopping in Mongolia. I was there and it was good news, okay? <laughs> Second, about check and balance. Yes, that's the issue. Uh, this rule of laws are not standards on even for the political parties themselves. And with that distorted rule of law, they come and they run the country and they make, sh they make sh the judiciary system, the executive power are controlled by the parliament. That's why today uh, the out of 76 parliament members, 16 of them are cabinet members. So we call it which tail they will wear today. See, many times they confuse both tail and uh, you know. So we expect that uh, with that change, they are, that's why they're suggesting new amendments to constitutions where they want to have more clear separate mm, roles. Third thing about political party. These two political parties have le their last chance to reform themselves. Otherwise, these young generations, millennials, will not support them anymore. They will not accept the values they are running for. So I think it is a uh, matter of timing. Couple elections, either they change or they die. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.